I was teaching in Lubbock, Texas, when No Child Left Behind came along. It was a scripted program. The teacher's going to read these things and the children are going to respond in this particular way. I don't know what the results of that particular brand of teaching was, but they had to be disastrous because there was no engagement. There was no control by the teachers. And it's an expectation that every child is going to learn this way. We can control what we say. We've got no idea whether the child has learned it or picked it up or anything else. Everything I do is actually not about literacy. It's about how we learn. If we don't have engagement, we've lost our students. If we don't have their attention, we've lost our students. And if we don't make the early literacy and learning child-centered, what about the child we're going to miss? children. We're going to leave them behind because you're saying we have to learn like this. To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we're joined with Lois Letchford. She is a author, an educator, and so much more. She wrote a book titled Reversed, a memoir. Lois, could you please introduce yourself and let people know just a little more about you, please? Hello, Ed. I'm delighted to be here. Yes, the book says it all, I think, you know, that I'm an author and I'm an educator. And this was an unexpected journey that happened to me and my family. So that's that's what makes me passionate, that an educational journey should never be so unexpected and so extreme. So... You've got quite a fascinating story here, Lois. Your son, uh, dyslexic, and I, I'm one of those, so I relate. And uh, for all of those, I have an uh, interview with Carl DeLue about dyslexia and the dyslexia code, which actually tells us dyslexia is a gift. And this story that we're going to talk about today brings a son that was basically tossed to the wind and said, well, we've got issues here, to being a PhD in Oxford. Lois, tell us about that fascinating journey of transition 
and how you started that transition with your son at an early age. You're right. In 1994, my son failed first grade. He, I sent him to school. He wet his pants, he bit his fingernails, and he stared into space. He's got nothing going for him. On day six of school, I spoke to the teacher and asked, well, how's he going? And she threw up her hands and she said, well, I don't know how I'm going to deal with him. He's so far behind. I can't do anything. In hindsight, I wish I had removed him from school there and then. I didn't because I had a two-year-old at home and I knew Nicholas needed one-on-one attention and I couldn't do it. That year was a disaster for him, a disaster for everyone, but it takes me a long time to work out how disastrous it was. So at the end of the year, you do the normal thing. You get tested. The testing shows he can read 10 words, he's got no strengths, and he has a low IQ. When you have a diagnosis like that at the age of six and a half, the chances of getting out of that are pretty close to non-existent. Yeah. So we did something unusual. We sent him on to second grade because at the end of second grade, our family were going to move to Oxford, England for six months. My husband's a professor and he had studied leave. So in June, we, we moved to Oxford, but this just six months, and I take Nicholas on. But Susan, we, as soon as we arrive in Oxford, the schools are on holidays, vacation. So there's another six weeks where I, I've got three boys at home. Nicholas is not going to work with me when there's other children around. So our time is now down to four months. And I start with a series of books called Success for All, decoding base, that's all that you've got to do. Isolated words on the page, decode them, say them again. I did that. You get to the end of the page, ask Nicholas the first word, no clue. Disaster. Disaster again. And I, my mother-in-law was with me and I said, what do I do? What do I do? You know, I'm crying over this. And she said, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. And at that time, I needed some additional input. Her words worked. In fact, I had a lot of fun writing about that chapter in, in my book. But then you've got, okay, I'm going to put that away. What am I going to do now? I've got a blank slate. I've got, I don't know what to do. I'm a mother. I was trained as a physical education teacher. I'm not a literacy specialist. Well, I know Nicholas can do two things. He can rhyme words and he can see patterns. And I thought, I'll write a little poem that's got rhyming words and patterns in it. So that's what I did. I wrote the poem overnight. The next day, I read it to Nicholas. And instead of us having stress in the classroom, he's relaxed. 
he's laughing and enjoying it. And then he illustrates the poem and it's a 3D illustration. You've got paper cuttings and this and that and the other. Phenomenal. Let's do another and another and another. I ended up, you know, with the double O's come up, like in Cook, Look and Book, the other rhyming words. So I wrote a poem about Captain James Cook, the last of the great explorers. And I wrote, Captain Cook had a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean. He took a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little nook. So you've got this incredibly simple poem with phenomenal ideas. And we're in Oxford. We start looking at maps. We start looking at the changing map of the world. Nicholas says to me, can I see Captain Cook's original maps? And he had to ask me twice before I even thought about it. And he said to me, you know, who came before Captain Cook? And I said, well, that's easy. And then he asked, and who came before Columbus? Now I'm floored. What I have learned is that my son can think and he doesn't have a low IQ. I needed to see that change in him. This, you know, four months of teaching changed his life and my life because we were not only doing poetry, so which is the decoding component, we're getting him to think, we are experiencing all these things because when Nicholas asked, can I see Captain Cook's original maps, I call up the British Museum and they say, yes, they're here. You've got to make an appointment. He's under 10. He can't see the original, but we can see copies. Great. We needed to see copies. And you've got this kid who was once so written off, engaged in learning, loving, thinking, thinking, thinking. And what I know about Nicholas is there's massive numbers of thoughts up here. They have a huge, it's like a funnel, a huge effort to get from there to the mouth. So when he's asking these what small questions, I know the thinking going on is phenomenal. Transformative learning for him and for me. We return to Australia and I relay this scenario to the diagnostician who'd done the testing. And I said he's asked these amazing questions. She stood in front of me, put her hands on her hips and said, well, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. I was floored. I go home, I think about it, I cry over it. I go back to school and I say to her, you can call him whatever you like, but if he is the worst child you've seen in 20 years of teaching, don't expect him to learn like everybody else. Best words ever sent to me, said to me. And again, her words were transformative. I continue to change the teaching. There's another scenario if you want me to go on. Sure. That really, really cemented all of this. The reading teacher, Nicholas is working one-on-one, 30 minutes a day, four days a week with with the teacher. She sends him home sentences to learn, you know, the sight words, these common words that we have to learn. The word saw came up and she sent him home with the sentence, I saw a cat climb up a tree. And then she wrote the second sentence, I saw a man rob a bank. 
Nicholas pulls out this little piece of paper and he reads, saw. I saw a cat and he stopped. He went back and he said, I was a cat and he shook his head. And then he went back again and he read, I had a cat and I asked her to cat and he just handed, just forget it, she said, throw it up. Took me a while to work out what was going on. Have you got any ideas? Yeah, he was thinking about uh, sawing a cat. Like cutting a cat in uh, half. Yeah, I, I, I deal with that myself a lot of the times. And I still, to this day, have to really focus when I'm reading that content. But uh, am I right? You are. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And you've, yeah. got the, you've got the combination. Our family had just been in another country. We had visited major cities, major attractions. And what's the teacher talking about? Something the child has never seen. Now I'm angry. <laughs> yeah. Because when I show, and then. I read this academic paper, which I live by, that was published in 1990. And the, the professor, Brian Camborn, said, the first thing we do is say, well, look at their IQ. Look at their background. Look at this. This is why they can't learn, instead of looking at the teaching. The teacher had failed to give this boy the true meaning of the word that it's yeah. got three meanings. How do I teach it? I get my kids the word saw. I get them to put it into the internet. Pictures come up of the saw. Choose one. Which one are we going to download? That's num meaning number one, I say. To and we write a sentence. This is a saw. Second meaning, verb, to cut. I saw a log. Or the saw, he used, the man used a saw to saw the log. Now you've got two words, two different meanings yeah. in the same sentence. <laughs> and the yeah. third thing I do is I take my students and I walk with them. I take a book and a pen with me. And I visit the library to start with. And I talk, we talk to the librarian and we watch. And then we walk away and I shut the door. And I say to my students, what did we do? We saw the librarian reading to the children. We saw the librarian stamping books. When is it happening? Now or in the past? And I'll say, now, no, no, it's not happening now. You and I are talking now outside of the library. It's happening. Ah, and they go, ah. Now my students have left with three independent meanings of the word saw. They know what they have to do, meaningful to the child, Reading makes sense. One word down, let's move on. That that makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, active learning, you know, p participatory learning. Uh, and it's so, so simple. But, you know, I, I was one of those child children that got tossed to the curb. I, I was on my own. I had to be learning myself. So uh, autodidact, it's one of those things you have to take control of. And when, when you're dealing with a disability that you don't even realize you have, 
that that is uh it, it just puts more frustration on the mind you you just laid out a scenario that i've suffered with so many times misunderstanding the meaning of the word because there's so many meanings of that simple word you know and the placement of the word where does it go how does it fit in these are things that it's not easy to learn by a book and a paper and i learned pictures help association with pictures so uh, i learned that through carl delu and his research yeah. when when they did the study about identifying and placing pictures in there it's it's a different way of learning and that's really you highlighted it so well there that we have to change and transform the way we teach in our schools what's your thought about that we teach to the average child the average child makes big jumps. The child like my son, Nicholas, who has a speech language impairment, we have to. There's stones underneath that, that those big jumps. We have to turn over every single one. A number of those sight words are abstract. The very first thing I ask students to do who come to me is give me a sentence with the word T-O and I'll get the parent to write the word T-O on or someone, write it down, give me a sentence with that word T-O. My 16-year-old student said to me, I've got two lessons the same. Ask for the word F-O-R, I have four grey shark's teeth. He's done exactly the same thing as Nicholas. Why isn't this child reading? Because the foundations of his learning are flawed. He spent 10 years in school. How many times has he read these words and nothing has made sense? And you want pictures. You want pictures not only for the word but for the sentence and active pictures because it's going from one thing to the other. I totally agree with you. So so it's it's a different side of the brain that's learning. Yeah. And, and when we understand that, uh, the logical and it, it just makes perfect sense but I, I don't understand why our teachers are not more informed about what we have encountered as a society with this simple thing dyslexic because i'm noticing there's quite a few successful people that are dyslexic and so many times I've been told you're no good because you're dyslexic and that is harming our society. Yes. So yes. We, we have to really develop the thought about, hey, dyslexia is a gift. You've just got to know how to use it. And that's where that act of learning comes in. And we have to get our children early. You know, yes. when, you, when you've failed and you've failed and you've failed, it's very hard to come out of that. Yeah. And only you know, uh, the few do. Yeah. I, I was I was interviewing Danny Brussel 
he's a yes, I know him. hooked on. Do you know him? Yeah, fabulous man. And you know what he does for just literacy. Yes, is fantastic. Yep. So he he talked about that on stage a few times, where you know making a sentence, but making the learning fun. I I hear you say that all the time you've got to make the learning fun so why aren't we educating our teachers and school boards and all of this to make learning fun instead of so linear i was teaching in lubbock texas when no child left behind came along it was a scripted program. The teacher's going to read these things and the children are going to respond in this particular way. I don't know what the results of that particular brand of teaching was, but they had to be disastrous because there was no engagement. There was no control by the teachers. And it's an expectation that every child is going to learn this way. We can control what we say. We've got no idea whether the child has learned it or picked it up or anything else. Everything I do is actually not about literacy. It's about how we learn. If we don't have engagement, we've lost our students. If we don't have their attention, we've lost our students. And if we don't make the early literacy and learning child-centred, what about the child we're going to miss children we're going to leave them behind because you're saying we have to learn like this yeah so let, let me get this quote right because i think it's very important it's not a learning problem but a language problem that we're dealing with in so many ways you've outlined that yes. and I think that is so, you know, core at the root of the cause of this. We have to be able to make it fun to learn. That way we don't have a learning problem with it. Could you talk to us about the language and uh, learning problem yes. association? There's a guy called Professor Charles Hume, H-U-L-M-E. He talks about the foundation for literacy is oral language. When we come to teach, there's a disconnect between how we speak and how we write. In fact, oral language is very casual, and I can say anything to you and get away with it. It's not a problem. You're not going to correct me. When it comes to written language, we care. We change the sentence structure. The language is formal. The words are spelt around the world relatively similarly. We don't speak like that. So there's the disconnect. And when we teach these words, we teach them like they come from a pile we've never seen before, as opposed to you speak these words you use these words every single day. And it even goes back to when we talk, 
we don't distinguish that we're talking in words. It comes out as one complete flow. When we write, we break that sentence up into individual words. That's a challenge for beginning readers. So we have to build all of these components. And often we do. We build them into the early literacy, forgetting that children who struggle need these ideas coming around for a longer period of time. It takes longer. It takes smaller group. It takes more intensity. It takes more teacher knowledge. So smaller groups, I think this is very important because we tend to get lost in the ocean, if you will. Yeah. And, and there's not enough time for the individual learning for each student. Because my, my own experience is each person, they learn a little bit different. And if they're not able to communicate with the one teaching, well, you're, you're kind of just left to guess on your own. And a lot of the time, that's how it was for me in the classroom. I, I would just get shifted to the back. And sometimes I was even afraid to ask the question because I didn't want to feel stupid about the simple one. Like you brought up two. This still haunts me today. Two, well, T-O, T-W-O, T-O-O, and they all are different and are used differently. It's the saw thing, but a simple word. And then the way you are teaching, you give example, taking them along with you, give examples of it, but in the classroom, you get a book with a little dog and a cartoon picture and maybe some words that you can read time and time again. But if you're reading them and you don't get it, it doesn't matter how many times you read it, you're still not going to get it. You need that special interaction that you take them and you walk them and give them the opportunity for experience. I think it's fascinating how you're outlining this. How can we get it put into our school system and make it policy that they teach in this fashion? Yeah. As you were talking, I had to laugh. I grew up reading words I could not comprehend. No one picked it up. I remember doing, you know, we had this SRA reading box. And I read the, you had to read the question, I mean, read the passage and answer the questions. I read the passage. I got every question wrong. And it was the first time I realized I've got no idea how to do this. And I, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. No one helped me. And there we had the judgment again. Um, she's not very smart. She can't do it because she's not very smart. And that's a problem about how we make these judgments so quickly on students. That's right. Instead of what else do I have to do to teach this child to read? 
I, a lot of my work, I said, you know, is about learning, but it's also about mindset. What's our mindset? What do we think about this child sitting in front of us? And that's what happened to my son. Well, the kid's just dumb, isn't he? They didn't say it, but boy, their actions said it. And the moment we make that judgment about a child, we have failed them. We, teachers and parents, need to see that child who's struggling as a future rocket scientist. Tell the child that and then teach them accordingly. Yes. That that is so true. You know, uh, what is it? Permalian effect? Uh, oh, it's eluding me right now, but it's something really close to that uh, where the learner has to be really in tune to the students. So you take a set of students and a they're they're going to teach rats how to go through a maze and you tell one set of students these are extraordinary rats and you know they can do exceptional things but the other students just have ordinary rats and through the scoring because you told the teachers that hey you're dealing with extraordinary rats here. Their scores excelled in extreme ways compared to the group of students that were told that they had ordinary rats. Do you know of this experiment? Because I really yes. think it, yes. it's and they did very... It they did it with people. Yeah. Exactly the same thing happened. Same effect, exactly. Same effect. Yeah. So so this is this is where when teachers are sitting around the lounge yeah. and you've got one teacher bad mouthing a student, student, them other teachers had better be on that person saying yeah. that's an extraordinary student. Yeah. I have you know, book, one of the books I love. There's two books I really love. One is called Why and the other is called Curious. Yeah. One is by Ian Leslie and the other is by Forgotten. Anyway, there's one phrase, and they're doing brain studies and MRIs on students, and he says that the when curiosity is involved and you do an MRI, it's like taking a slice of the ocean, but curiosity propagates in the brain in untold ways. That's exactly what happened to my son, Nicholas. You know, the curiosity just lit up his brain. He was thinking about things in extraordinary ways as a seven-year-old, and it, that's where his life changed. It's not because I taught him phonics or this or that or the other, but it's the tapping into his curiosity. Yes, I did teach him decoding in extraordinary, minimal steps, one after the other, but it was it was the combination of both that really helped him, propelled him to say, I love learning. I spoke to him after he'd finished his PhD and I said to him, Nicholas, tell me about your learning in first grade. My son, articulate and confident, cried. We had not processed anything that had happened 20 years ago. 
And I thought, I can't deal with that now. And I said, Nicholas, tell me, tell me about the learning you and I did in 1995. And his face went from, the tears are dried up. And he said, I'll never forget the poems you wrote for me. The Mug of the Bug, The Windmill on the Hill. He named the poems 20 years later. And he said, the mapping. Uh, the mapping taught me to love learning and I never want to stop learning. This is the power. And then he started giggling and this blew me. He talked to you, he said, you wrote a poem about a witch's spell and he's giggling like a seven-year-old. <laughs> he said, it was just so funny. I don't remember at all, but it was just so funny. That's how powerful my teaching in 1995 Transparent. Yeah. And, and that's what we need. Yeah. You know, uh, and and really the only way to get there is through conversations like this and pushing it, really pushing it. Because I had a conversation in Walmart with my local librarian and it, it was just so disheartening, the words that fell from her mouth, the the words was we've been doing it this way for 40 years and we aren't going to change it now. And this just crushed me. Like, are you serious? That's the attitude of the administration in the school systems. And, and maybe we need to change some people then it's time to really start actively taking responsibility for the kids in that school i know how it was like when they see you as a target and you have dyslexia or a speech impediment because i dealt with that also and all of the hostilities you know you talk about uh your son nicholas uh urinating in school well i I asked to go to the restroom and they told me to hold it. I, I just urinated because, and then I was the laughing stock of the school because an adult didn't understand how important it is to let a child go to the bathroom. If he says he needs to go to the bathroom, you know, it's just the headstrong nature of, control in that we we really have to put some loving kindness and empathy into our teaching i don't know you said it you said it yeah loving so so yeah how many children get cast aside and how long are we going to allow them to be cast aside because it's still happening today I read an article that's coming out in a book on advocacy about putting kids in prison. Now, they've been in school, their behaviour problems are this and that and the other. They go to the prison. The first thing that happens in prison, they get tested for dyslexia and learning disabilities. It didn't happen in the schools. It happened in the prison. Oh my! Are you serious? Yeah. And this, we can't give you we can't give you support in school, but we'll give it to you in prison. Yeah, that that is just something else, uh, and that's the mentality we're dealing with. 
well, we're not going to deal with the trouble until it is actually trouble. That's like a squeaky bearing on a wheel in your car. And, well, it's not a problem. You know, it's still working. It's the same mentality. You, you've got to take control and really stand up. So, Lois, do you have a call to action for our listeners today? Buy my book and write a review for it. It gives you teaching ideas and it gives the journey that we went through. And it talks about the other students that I've taught. If you have a student or a child that is struggling, connect with me, reach out to someone, know and believe that they are capable of learning to read and that they can be taught. Yes, uh, that's strong. Now, before we get into the socials and all that, I want to talk about your book a little bit there. Could you explain the cover art on the book for us and show show the people on the YouTube? Uh, this is interesting. So our listeners on the podcast, if you go to YouTube, you can actually see Lo Lois's book. Is that one of those yes. fold-up cube yes. things that yes. you made? All right. That's yes. kind of interesting. Now, the map won't mean anything to you, will it? <laughs> no. Okay. There's a map there. When Nicholas asked, you know, who came before Captain Cook, who came before Christopher Columbus, the, this is the world's first map drawn in 250 AD by a man called Ptolemy who never left the shores of Alexandria and drew the first oh map of the world. And because we were in Oxford, we were able to find this, a book of maps by Ptolemy at that year. Very interesting. Nicholas, so that is a map. Yeah. Yeah, it's a map. And and it's available. If you look at Ptolemy, it's P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, the Ptolemy map of the world. And Nicholas drooled over it. What I didn't know is Nicholas's spatial awareness places him on the 99th percentile. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So how long did it take for you to write the book? <sighs> because I'm dyslexic. <laughs> you know, people think it's just a book because I'm dyslexic. I actually had a coach write with me for full 12 months. Then it took three editors to get it to the standard that we got it to now. Awesome. It's cost me a lot of money. I need to say that because people think, I don't know what people think, that it's easy to write, but I've not been a writer. I, like you, struggle through school. You get condemned. You live with that forever. So to, for me to sit down and write a book was huge. I've got a second one on the way. It's taking time. And I need to come up with my own funds to do it But I, because I know I need editors. Yes, so that's the book. Right on. It's, you know, it as one of the um, reviewers said, I laughed and I cried often. And I vowed to fight for the you know, the needs of every child. 
Yes. That makes the book right there worth it, Lois. Yeah, you, you just sold me one. And I hope you sold my listeners one. Yes. So yeah. great, great. I, I love that. You know, and I love the magic in the photo that is on the book. It is very interesting. It makes you go, what is that? You know, <laughs> so that's that's the why factor everybody should be looking for. I, I love the why. No when, I, when I saw this picture, I just went, oh. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Yeah. I thought I can't go past it. It it's the Good choice. nutshell. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. So Lois, how can people get a hold of you and uh get connected with you? I am and pick up one of your fascinating books. The, the book is available on Amazon. I have my own website, www.loisletchford.com. I'm on LinkedIn and on Twitter, and Facebook has changed, and I don't know how to use it now. But connect with me through at letchfordlois at gmail.com if you need to. And believe in your child. Believe they can be taught to read. You are doing fascinating things, Lois. And uh, the YouTube, it's packed with interesting, insightful knowledge. So I encourage people to go over there, look at Lois's YouTube. The yes. links are right below here and everything you can find there. Lois, thank you for sharing your story and being here with us. Time is precious and valuable, and this is going to really add up in the long run. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for having me on your show. This is fantastic. Pleased to have you, Lois. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe, and join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.